Well, as you know, this year we're setting aside the uh, third Sunday of every month to study communion. This is when we usually take communion together, and so we're taking time to, to really look at it because it's a rich and multi-dimensional symbol that God has given us, and it's helpful to look at it from multiple angles. So far, we've looked at two different angles of communion. I hope it's been helpful for you. Uh, the first time in January, we looked at, uh, at the Passover. We saw that the Lord's Supper has a backstory, and the backstory behind the Lord's Supper is Passover, the Passover meal. So when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, he did it at a Passover meal. Uh, and a Passover was something that God had instituted so that the people would never forget his great act of deliverance in bringing them out of Egypt. How a lamb was killed to be a substitute for the firstborn. And because of the blood, the wrath of God passed over and they were brought out of Egypt. And he said, do this every year so you never forget my salvation. And Jesus, in the same way, gives us the Lord's Supper to say, never forget my salvation. Every time you do this, remember that Jesus is the Passover lamb, the one who sacrificed himself to save us from our sins and to bring us out of our slavery to sin and death and the devil. So every time we eat this, we remember and we proclaim it to the next generation. And we say, this is the central fact of Christianity, that Christ gave his body and his blood for us. So every time we eat, we remember. Uh, and then we looked at the bread uh, last month. We looked at the bread and we saw that Jesus... Uh, uses bread specifically as this object lesson of all that he is for us. So we looked at the story of the feeding of the 5,000 in the aftermath of that when people came to Jesus because they were hungry, they were literally physically hungry, and they wanted more literal physical bread. And Jesus said, I'm not going to give you that, I'm going to give you me. I am the bread. And what he meant by that is that he's the one who satisfies our deepest hunger. He's the one who gives us everlasting life. Physical bread can satisfy your hunger briefly. It can keep you alive for another day. But only Jesus can satisfy the deepest hungers of your heart. Only Jesus can keep you alive forever. And just like bread needs to be actually taken and eaten, eaten for it to be any good for you, to give you any nourishment, so too Jesus needs to be more than just seen from afar. But you need to take him into your life by faith. And as you receive him, then he gives you eternal life. Then he gives you that satisfaction. And so we looked at the bread and saw that last time. Uh, but there's another element in every communion meal, not just bread, but wine. Okay. And before you freak out, you're still drinking grape juice today, all right? But this is real $3 Kroger wine. And uh, this is our object lesson today. I want you to see this. So just like last time we had the loaf just sitting up here, this week I want you to see and pay attention. Jesus gave us object lessons on purpose. So wine, wine is a part of this meal. Um, what is the significance of this? Uh, why did Jesus give us bread and wine? Well, let's start in 1 Corinthians 11. We're going to jump around. I've got all the passages listed on your note-taking outline at the top. There's going to be a lot of them today. We'll start in 1 Corinthians 11, these familiar words that I always read before we take the Lord's Supper together. 1 Corinthians 11, 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. 
For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. All right, so Paul here is recording the tradition he received about Jesus in the Last Supper. And so he says, you know, Jesus tells us to remember him. He gives us the bread to eat. But then he also says those famous words, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So we've covered the remembrance part, we covered the bread part, but what about this cup? And what is this deal with a new covenant in his blood? What is that about? Why are we doing that? Okay, to, dive in, to answer that question, we've got to dive into the Old Testament again. We've got to look at the backstory. So go ahead and turn to Exodus 19. And while you're flipping there, I'll remind you, a couple months ago, I gave the illustration of the Avengers movies, uh, that there's a new one coming out, Avengers Age of... No, Avengers Infinity War, thank you, Part 1. And this is the culmination of 19 other Marvel movies over the last number of years that have been leading up to it. And so if you really want to understand and appreciate uh, Infinity War Part 1, it'd be good to watch some of the earlier movies to understand the backstory of what's happening. Uh, but really, it, I should have said, you need to watch the movies to understand the backstories of what's happening. Because if you want to understand the backstory of Thor, then you should watch the three Thor movies. And if you want to understand the backstory of Captain America, you need to watch the Captain America movies and maybe Agent Carter and some other ones. Um, so there's all these different backstories. And the same thing with Passover. Uh, and with what we're talking about here. Uh, we looked at uh, one backstory of the Lord's Supper, which is Passover, but there's multiple backstories. And so one of the backstories is the covenant, uh, the covenants of the Old Testament. So covenants are all over the Bible. Covenants form, in one way, the backbone of the storyline of the Bible. Uh, if you look on your note-taking outline, I've got a, a, a simple definition of a covenant for you. We're going to use that word a lot, so it's worth defining today. A covenant is a relationship that involves obligations established through an oath. It's a relationship that involves obligations established through an oath. The most obvious example of a covenant is marriage. We see that all around us. Um, marriage is a covenant. A husband and wife make an oath to one another and before God, an oath of commitment and that oath entails obligations to one another, special obligations that you don't have to everyone else. And that oath of obligation makes that relationship special. It's different from every other relationship that you have. Now, God does this in the Bible. Four different times, God makes a specific oath, a specific covenant with people and defines this intentional relationship of obligation through an oath. He does it with Noah. He does it with Abraham. He does it with David. And the one we're going to look at today is the one he makes with the people of Israel at Mount Sinai. Sometimes it's called the Mosaic Covenant because it's made with Moses and the people. We'll just call it the Old Covenant today. And you find it in Exodus 19, uh, chapters 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, and 24. Don't worry, we're not going to read all of those. Uh, but the Old Covenant we first see in um, Exodus 19. And what we see happening is that God makes a covenant with his people. So look at these verses, Exodus 19, 4 through 6. This is coming after the Passover's happened, after they've been brought out of Egypt, and now God says this in Exodus 19, verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. 
Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So what's going on here is that God, this is the marriage proposal. Okay? So in the context of making the covenant, this is the proposal. God says to the people, I want to make this covenant with you. I brought you out of Egypt. I want you to be my people. I'm inviting you into this special relationship. Will you marry me? Okay? That's, that's what's happening here in chapter 19. Now then in chapters 20 through 23, you have the obligations that go along with the oath. Chapter 20 is very famous. It's the Ten Commandments. And after that, you get uh, some specific rules about how they're going to live together, where he talks about uh, just unique situations that might arise. Here's what you do when uh, somebody steals something. Here's what you do uh, with immigrants. Here's how you, you live together you know, under my laws. So he gives the obligations in these chapters. But then after he does that, he invites the people again now to marry him. Let's, let's do this, right? I'm inviting you. Uh, I've told you what I expect. Will you marry me? And in Exodus 24, uh, they say yes. So Exodus 24, verse 1 says, Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. So they're saying, yes, we will marry him. We understand the obligations. We understand what he's offering. We want to be in this relationship. And then you get the wedding ceremony in verse 4. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So this is the, this is the marriage ceremony. This is the covenant-making ceremony. Moses reads the book of the covenant in verse 7. And the people again say, uh, we will do this. All the Lord has spoken, we will do. So it's sort of like in a, in a marriage ceremony. like it, For anything to even happen, you've got to say yes to the proposal. But then you've got the actual ceremony where you again say yes. You say, I do, I will. This is them saying, I do. And then instead of exchanging rings, he throws blood on them, which for some reason has fallen out of favor at marriages. You know, you don't probably ruins the white dress or you know, the tux is a rental. You don't want to get blood all over it. Um, but we'll, we'll come back to why they do the blood thing. But they ha that's like the vows. That's like the exchange of the rings. It seals the covenant. Is the, the sprinkling of the blood on the people. And then they have their reception afterwards. Verse 9. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet as it were a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. So after the wedding, they have a celebratory meal with God. And they can do that. They don't get destroyed when they finally have a meal with God because they're in this special relationship. They have been united to him in this bond, this covenant bond. So God makes a covenant with his people. This is 
the old covenant. Um, but we need to talk about the blood. What's going on there? Because that's, that's different from what we do in our covenant ceremonies. So when God makes a covenant, he seals the covenant with blood. Why does he do that? Why would God use blood to seal his covenants? Two reasons. First, the blood purifies the people. It purifies the people so that they can enter a relationship with a holy God. See, before these people can marry God, before they can enter into relationship with this pure and holy God, they need to be cleansed. God is holy. He has no sin. He cannot tolerate sin in his presence. And yet these people, like all of us, are sinful and uh, wicked. And there's no way God can join himself in marriage to this wicked people. Uh, it's sort of like when you're, you know, like if you have a contract where you're trying to sell your house, that before you can actually go through with that contract, they have to do a check to make sure there's no liens on your property. Make sure you haven't actually taken out another loan with somebody else or you got, nobody has a claim on your house. You can't enter into this new contract until you get that old baggage taken care of. Same thing here with this covenant with God. He can't enter into a new covenant with these people until their baggage gets taken care of, until all the old debts are taken care of. Now, how does blood do that? Okay, now we need to jump to the New Testament, to Hebrews chapter 9. In Hebrews 9, we actually get um, the New Testament author explaining the passage we just looked at. And he talks about how this blood purified the people. So Hebrews 9, verse 18. So he's, he's speaking of the same passage we just read in Exodus. He says, Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So verse 22 is the key there. It says, Everything is purified with blood. Without blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. At first, it doesn't seem like it makes sense to us. You'd think, if you're going to purify something, you should probably put water on it, maybe? Not blood? Well, it tends to make things messier, not cleaner. But that's only if you're thinking about outward appearances, washing off dirt or those sorts of things. But the stain that we need cleansed is much deeper than dirt on our clothing. It's the sin on our souls. And so if you need sin to be purified, you need something stronger than water, you need blood. See, God in his mercy from the very beginning of time made it so there was a way for sins to be removed. It was through the death of a substitute. And in the Old Testament, the substitute was an animal. That is, you and I, because of our sins, we deserve to die. We have this huge debt, and it should be paid by our own blood, by our death. But God said, no, in his mercy... He would allow a substitute, to, a substitute to die in the place of the sinner so that the blood of an animal could purify you from your sins. 
We saw that principle in the Passover where the lamb died and the blood was put over the doorpost and that counted for the firstborn. And here in the making of the Old Covenant, it's the blood of calves and goats that are killed instead of the people. And their blood being sprinkled on the people counts as the blood of the people so that now they are cleansed of their sins and able to enter into the presence of the holy God. So the blood is used to purify. But there's another level to the symbol. And it's that the blood also establishes the consequences for breaking the covenant. Establishes the consequences. Uh, So covenants are very serious things. They are not something to enter into lightly, just like marriage. Uh, And in terms of the biblical covenants, this seriousness is reinforced by the fact that blood is used to seal the covenant. It's a blood oath. It's a way of saying, if I break this covenant, my blood is forfeit. My life is forfeit. You see the same thing in Genesis 15, which you don't have to look at it now. I'll summarize it, but I encourage you to look at this later. In Genesis 15, God makes a covenant with Abraham. And in this one, he tells Abraham, okay, for the ceremony, I need you to get a cow, a goat, a ram, and two birds. Cut them in half, and then lay them next to each other with a path in the middle. So you got these dead animals cut in half on either side of the path. And then for the actual making of the covenant, God walks between the animals. And the symbolism there is, if I break this covenant, may I become like these dead animals, right? You're symbolically walking between these dead animals to say, this is the stakes of the covenant. This is what happens to one who breaks this covenant. When you walk through that path, you're saying, if I break this, I'm dead meat. Okay, in the same way, when God makes this covenant here in Exodus 24, the people are agreeing, if we break this covenant... Our blood is forfeit. We will do everything that you say, Lord. We're committed to this. And we are declaring the seriousness of our commitment by sealing this oath with blood. And of course, you know that the the consequences uh, were real. They made this covenant. They said, we will do everything that you want us to do, God. And then they promptly did not do everything that God wanted them to do. In fact, the rest of the Old Testament is the story of the people of Israel breaking this covenant again and again and again. And finally, after many generations of mercy, God brought the consequences of the covenant to bear, and they paid for it in their blood. That's what we've been studying in Lamentations the last few weeks. Uh, The destruction of Jerusalem, the, the killing of all the people, this is a result of them breaking this covenant they made with God. And they paid for it with their blood. But you know, even in the midst of that failure, God made a promise of a new covenant. So Jeremiah was the prophet to the people during that time, leading up to them paying for their failures in blood. And in Jeremiah 31, God gave this message of hope that even though this old covenant had been broken, And the consequences to it were coming. He was not done with his people. He was going to make a new covenant. So Jeremiah 31, 31 records this prophecy. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. 
Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So, so God's saying, you know, I, I married you. I brought you out of Egypt. I married you. you. You said yes. We made our vows, and then you broke them. And you're bearing the consequences of that choice. But I'm not done with you. I'm going to remarry you. And it's going to be better because where that one didn't work out, this one will. Because there's going to be some significant differences this time around. And the promises he gives here, you know, first of all, he says the law is going to be written on their hearts, not just on stone. That was a big problem with the old covenant. It was an external covenant. It was a list of rules that the people said, yeah, we'll do those things. But it never got into their hearts. They never wanted to obey. It's like a man standing up there. At, at his wedding, and with his lips saying, I will forsake all others, while knowing full well he still has an appointment with his mistress the next Friday. Okay? His, his, his words are saying one thing, but he's not in his heart desiring to actually be married to his wife. And that was the problem with the Old Covenant. There were all these words, all these commands that God had given that people said, we will do this, but they didn't really want to. Their hearts weren't transformed. But God says it's going to be different in the remarriage. It's going to be different in the new covenant. It's going to go all the way down to your heart. You're going to be transformed from the inside out, wanting to obey. And then he says it's going to be different because everyone's going to know the Lord personally. So the old covenant God made with the whole nation of Israel, and that was a mixed bag. There were people in the nation of Israel who did have faith and who did know God personally, like Moses, for example. But there were also lots of people who were just in it ethnically because they were born into it. It was just a part of their heritage. But they didn't personally know God. They didn't have that relationship. So you had the situation where those who did believe in God had to actually tell other people who were in the covenant with them, you need to know God. But God says here, no, in the new covenant, it's going to be different. Every person in the new covenant will know the Lord. You're not going to have to say to your brother, know the Lord, because they're all going to know me. Every single person in the new covenant will know the Lord. There's still going to be people outside the covenant who don't know him, but everyone inside will know him. That's one of the reasons why the old covenant failed, is because over time, over generations, people were born into it who didn't know the Lord. And so they abandoned him. But God says, no, there's no way you can just be born into the new covenant. You have to be born again into it. God says, I'm going to do this. I'm going to forgive your sin. I'm going to forgive the covenant breaking. I'm going to marry you again, and it's going to be better. It's going to be a new covenant. Now, this prophecy was made before the judgment on Jerusalem, before the, the final demolition of the old covenant. When did it come true? According to Jesus and to Paul and to the author of Hebrews, it came true on the cross. It happened on the cross. The new covenant was established by Jesus when he sat there around the table with his disciples and said, this cup 
This cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's here. The new covenant's here. Jesus makes a new covenant with his people. Just like God made a covenant with his people, an old covenant, Jesus makes a new covenant. 1 Corinthians 11.25 says, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. He's saying all that stuff foretold by Jeremiah, it's here now. It's happening in me. I'm making a new relationship with you. Not the same old covenant that was broken by the people in the past, but a new covenant, a better one, one that will work. See, that's what it means to be a Christian. It means you've entered into the new covenant. It means you are in a marriage-type relationship with God through Jesus Christ, and all the things foretold by Jeremiah are true of you. When you become a Christian, the law is not a set of commands that you need to keep. Some people think that's what Christianity is. Oh, come join our group where we've got all these rules we keep. No. Christianity is when God takes those rules and puts them in your heart. When he transforms you from the inside out so that now you desire, you really desire to love God and to love other people. You desire to do what's right. God takes that law and he writes it on your heart. And when you become a Christian... You know God personally. Some people still think that Christianity is something that you're born into, that you accept culturally, just like the old covenant. No. To be a Christian is to be born again into the covenant family. It means that every single person who's a real Christian, who's been born again, knows the Lord personally. You don't have to go around from born-again Christian to born-again Christian saying, do you know the Lord? Do you know the Lord? I mean, I know you're born in a Christian family, but do you know the Lord? No. The, the Christian faith, the new covenant, is one in which every believer knows the Lord. Now, surely we still tell non-Christians to know the Lord. We still invite them to join the covenant. But within the covenant community, everyone knows God personally. And that's what Jesus promised on that night when he sat with his disciples and he held up the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. They knew what he was talking about. He's talking about Jeremiah 31. You're going to know God personally. You're going to be restored in relationship with him. Your sins are going to be forgiven. He makes a new covenant. And then like the old covenant, he seals it with blood. Jesus seals the new covenant with his blood. He says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Now, obviously, just like, like now... Um, that cup that he was handing out to the disciples held wine, not blood. Okay. So this cup is a new covenant in my blood, but it was, it was wine. But it was a symbol of the very real blood that was going to be shed on the cross. That blood, the blood of Jesus shed on the cross, is the blood of the new covenant. And it does the same things that the blood of the old covenant did, but better. So just like the blood of the Old Covenant sprinkled on the people, purified them so they could enter a relationship with God, the blood of Jesus purifies you so that you can enter a relationship with the Holy God. They needed to be purified with the blood of bulls and goats. But we get something better. We get the blood of Jesus. If you jump back to Hebrews 10, he talks about this. Hebrews 10, verse 1. It says, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who would draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? 
But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Okay, so what he, what's he saying? He's saying animal blood, although it was a gift of God for a period of time, it can't really take away your sins. It's animal blood. How can animals ever be an appropriate sacrifice for the sins of a human? How could they ever cleanse us really from our sins? And he points out to the fact that these sacrifices were offered all the time, every day, every year. There's a continual reminder of sacrifice for sin because these animals aren't effective in taking it away completely. But he says in Hebrews 10, verse 11, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. By a single offering. So in the New Covenant, you don't need to be, perf- to be purified from your sins again and again and again. Uh, this is the reason why we don't kill goats in our sanctuary every, morning, every Sunday morning, right? It's because we don't need to. Because there's no sacrifices needed anymore. Jesus has given us the one sacrifice in his blood that purifies us from all sins. And that's what we're supposed to remember when we see this cup. This cup of blood red wine. We're supposed to remember that, that we have been purified by Jesus. Just like the blood was sprinkled on the people to make them able to enter the relationship with God, so too the blood of Jesus has been poured on us so that we can be purified, so we can have a relationship, a covenant, marriage-like relationship with the holy and perfect God. The blood of Jesus purifies us. But also, the blood of Jesus pays for the consequences for our covenant unfaithfulness. The blood of Jesus pays for the consequences of our covenant unfaithfulness. Uh, so we saw that part of the symbolism of blood in the old covenant was establishing consequences. If you break this covenant, your blood is forfeit. And maybe when you heard that, you thought, whew, I'm glad we're in the new covenant. Those stakes seem pretty high. I'm glad the stakes aren't that high in the new covenant. But they are. The stakes are exactly as high in the new covenant as they were in the old If you sin against God and you break his covenant, the penalty is exactly the same. You still deserve death. I still deserve death. The wonderful difference is, it's not your blood at stake. It's Jesus. You notice what he said when he instituted the new covenant? He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. In my blood. Whose blood? Your blood? No. Jesus did not say, this cup is the new covenant in your blood, so slice your finger, let's make an oath, put some of your blood in, let's get some of your skin in the game, so that when you break this covenant, you will die. He didn't say that. It's unilateral. This cup is the covenant in my blood, and my blood alone. He's the only one who gave his blood to form this covenant. He didn't demand anything from you. Which means that your sins fall on him. Even though we are the ones who break the covenant, he is the one who died. And when you say it like that, it sounds unfair, doesn't it? 
But that's the good news of the gospel. The gospel is gloriously unfair. That's why we call it grace. We get, sorry, uh, he gets what we deserve, and we don't get what we deserve. Right? He takes the punishment. We break the covenant. He dies. We break the covenant. He sheds his blood. That's how much God loves you. See, without this glorious unfairness, we would have no hope. Because I break the covenant every day. Even though God lives in me, even though his law is written on my heart, I still wander off, I still chase after other gods, I still disobey. And because of that, I deserve to die. I deserve my blood to be shed. But thanks be to God that the blood of Jesus, the blood of Jesus, not me, pays the consequences for my sins. So remember that when you drink the cup today. None of us deserve to be in the new covenant. We deserve to be punished for our sins. We, we deserve eternal death. But Jesus gave his blood for us. He paid it all so that we would have nothing to fear. So remember the blood. Remember the blood. When you drink the cup, remember the blood of the new covenant. That when you put your faith in Jesus, you entered into this marriage-like relationship with God. And the blood of Jesus sealed that covenant. He purified you so that you and me, dirty sinners that we are, could be clean and in relationship with him. And he paid for the consequences of your sin and for mine. So remember that. Celebrate that as we take the Lord's Supper together today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this amazing picture of an even more amazing reality that Jesus Christ willingly gave his life and bore the full wrath, your wrath against all of our sins. Thank you that Jesus paid it all for us and that as we come to you by grace, we can come boldly wearing a righteousness that is not our own, but is a gift through the blood of Jesus. As we take communion together now, Lord, would you drive that deeply into our hearts and give us joy. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.